Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher, author, filmmaker, and the founder of InPeak, a platform where entrepreneurs and business professionals come to network, learn together, and stay ahead of the curve in the fast-paced world of emerging technologies like blockchain, Web3, NFTs, AI, automation, and so much more. Today, we have two guests or rather a co-host and a guest. I was going to interview Tim Baker, who runs the core protocol meetings for Ethereum and overall coordinates some of the most important movements happening as Ethereum goes towards the merge. The merge is when Ethereum transitions from proof of work to proof of stake. I have videos on YouTube where I explain these topics in case you're not sure what I'm talking about. Now, as I mentioned, I have another awesome person on this episode with me, and that's Tara Anison of Elliptic, who has been on a couple of previous episodes, and you all know I like her very much. Tara is super knowledgeable about the technical aspects of blockchain technology, and she follows the merge very closely. I invited her to join me on this episode to make sure that we asked him the right questions if things got too technical for me. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you will too. Before we start, I also wanted to tell you about Athletic Greens, our sponsor for today's show. I started taking their AG1 daily supplement because I work 14 to 15 hours a day and I need a way to stay at my peak performance. Now, I've been taking it for several months at this point, and I love it. I definitely feel more mentally alert and I seem to be more energized during my workouts. Honestly, it's no wonder that Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. I wanted to share this with you because I personally have been loving it. To make it easier for you, Athletic Greens is also going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We also have another sponsor today. MetaBrew Society, founded by Holger Manwiller, is the first project that builds a utility bridge between NFTs and the metaverse and a legacy industry. Every MetaBrew Society NFT grants you in real life utility of up to 300 cans of free craft beer per year in perpetuity. You also get voting rights on business decisions and access to exclusive brewing classes and beer tastings. MetaBrew Society is preparing to buy a real brewery from the NFT drop, where they deliver product innovations like high protein or smoked beers. They are also creating iconic beer shops in a digital twin of the MetaBrew Society in the metaverse. The NFT revolution of the beer industry happens now, and you can be part of it. So Tim, why don't you start by telling us uh, a little bit about your background, how you start working with uh, Ethereum. And um, I also listened to your podcast on, on Bankless and I really liked your t-shirt story where you were, you know, you were quite an entrepreneur, you know, selling t-shirts uh, and, and printing t-shirts. And I have done exactly the same thing. So I, I grew up in Iran and I did exactly the same thing, t-shirt t-shirt printing and selling at, at the age of 14. So we have that in common. I also used to do t-shirts. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was at school, wow. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the three musketeers of t-shirt yeah. 
Of course. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, that T-shirt story goes like way, way back. Um, but I, I um, you know, I started, I guess, getting interested in Ethereum a bit later in life, like before working in tech or even knowing anything about tech, I was much more into like uh, arts and music as a teenager. And uh, as, as I mentioned on the Bankless show, I had a, a T-shirt brand for a couple of years. Uh, then I actually, I ran a painting company for a few years, like residential house painting, um, not even like art gallery painting. Uh, so I did that. And actually doing that, I realized like it just scales so poorly. Like if you, you know, if, if you have like five people painting for you and you want to go to 10, then like you need to say, have like some manager working. And if you go to 20, it's like, as the more you scale, uh, the more infrastructure you need. And it, it just felt like, um, like you could grow that type of company, but it was always more work. Like there was never really any returns to scale. Um, and, and at that point, I started to get a bit more interested in technology partially because of that, because it just felt like something where like, you know, if you built something once, you didn't have to redo it all over again from scratch every time. Um, and so so kind of got, got interested in, in tech um, around the same time, I, this must have been like 2013, 2014, I heard about Bitcoin for the first time, didn't really think too much of it, but like I, I, I knew it existed. Um, I bought my first Bitcoin, I think it was like 2014, maybe 2015, around that period. Um, and um, like a year or two after I heard about Ethereum, um, when the DAO happened, but when uh, basically the DAO is now like known as this big hack on Ethereum, which led to Ethereum Classic, I learned about it like before the hack. So like when the DAO was just like this really exciting project that was being built on, on blockchain. Um, and so that kind of got me interested in, in, in learning more about Ethereum. I actually bought some Ether, put it in the DAO and got hacked like, you know, as part of every uh, everyone part of the DAO hack like two days later. Um, so it was really like, a, a, like an interesting moment to join the community. And I knew like nothing about blockchains beyond like, you know, you can copy paste an address and send Bitcoin or Ether to somebody or and, and and that was kind of it, right? Um, so it, it really kind of you know got me in in the community like at, at this moment where a lot of stuff was happening, yeah, and I had to, to learn a bunch of things really quickly because like you had to split your coins because the Ethereum Classic fork was originally launched with like unsafe parameters, and you needed to make sure that transactions can be replayed. Um, and I now I, I can tell you all of this, but like as it was happening, I had no idea what any of those words meant. So it was literally just like copy pasting commands from different Reddit threads and hoping I wouldn't lose all my all my coins. Um, and, and after that, like for about six months or a bit more, um, the biggest projects on Ethereum had gotten hacked and things really kind of died in this space. And I think there was like, at least for me, this feeling like, well, if we're building this smart contract platform and you can't build a secure smart contract on it, you know, how good of a product is it? And, and I was concerned like, well, you know, maybe Ethereum was just like an interesting idea that's just not going to work out. Um, but then in like 2017, late 2016, and, and definitely in 2017, you started seeing like the first wave of, of ICOs on Ethereum. Um, and that was like really interesting to me because it showed like, okay, there's new projects that are trying to, to build stuff uh, on, on the network. Um, and they're trying to build a bunch of different types of things. So it wasn't just like, you know, one type of project. So that was that was interesting to see. Um, and then in the summer of 2017, when it started to get really crazy with, with ICOs, um, I think that's when I realized like, it was clear there would be demand for like something like Ethereum, even if like all the projects building, you know, on Ethereum failed at that point, like clearly like there was demand for something there. 
And the other thing that became uh, quite, quite obvious if you were using Ethereum at the time is like the network was still very uh, unstable. Like I remember like some ICOs uh, would have so much demand that like the transaction pool would be full for like a few days. Gas fees would stay up for like a really long time, although probably quite low relative to what they are today. Um, but it just felt like one bad ICO could like mess with the stability of, of like the network for like days. Um, and to me, that felt like really bad. Um, and, and that's kind of what got me interested in, in, in spending more time and eventually working on the protocol. Um, I felt like at the time, I wasn't confident enough on any of the projects built on Ethereum to be like, okay, that's the thing I want to work on. I was like, clearly the protocol itself is, is, is like really valuable, but also like in need of a lot of upgrading. And, and I wanted to spend time on that. At the time, I was basically a product manager. Like I have a computer science degree, but I'm not like a software engineer by any like professional standard. Um, so it was kind of hard to find a job where you're working on the protocol, but you're not writing code for the protocol. Like I don't have the technical level to do that. Um, so it, it took me about like a year to find like a full-time role. During that time, I was still kind of, you know, trying to get involved in the community, going to meetups, reading everything I could online. Um, about a year later, uh, Consensus actually started this decided to start a protocol team uh, and they luckily hired product managers for that. So I, I, uh, I got to join consensus uh, when they were work, when they were kind of setting up their protocol team. Um, and, and I spent like two and a half years at consensus there helping to build uh, one of their implementations of the Ethereum protocol. So uh, the client called Hyperledger BaseU. Um, and that got me really, you know, full-time working on the protocol area itself. And then uh, after like two and a half years, uh, there was somebody at the Ethereum Foundation who was running uh, what we call the all core devs calls, uh, which are calls where the different protocol teams get together and chat about changes to Ethereum. Um, so he had been doing that forever and uh, wanted to step out. And um, given I was literally the only non-engineer aside from him who is regularly on the call, it kind of made sense for me to just take over. Um, and that's what I've been doing since then. So uh, it's been, uh, again, almost two years, I think I've, I've been doing this, but um, now I work at the Ethereum Foundation, and, and the main thing I do is running these calls where the different implementers working on Ethereum come together and discuss kind of changes or issues with the protocol. Um, and then the other big part of what I do is then explaining all those changes and, uh, and, and kind of the broader Ethereum roadmap to the community in a bunch of different places, um, including conversations like this one. Amazing, amazing. So, um, Tara, uh, feel free to jump in anytime. I'm just—I have a few points. I'm—I'm uh, going to try and get through, and then I'll—I promise I'll give you some airtime. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, one question I have, Tim. So, one of the things that you said in your interview with David Hoffman, you said that one of the things that you've always thought about when starting a business uh, is that it's only worth doing it if you can do it better than the top 1%, right? Uh, do you see Ethereum as that, uh, basically having that ability to do things better than the top 1%? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, the, the thing yeah, the thing I didn't mention, Gerda, that I had a startup that failed. And, and I think part of the reasons why it failed is just we were bad founders. And that was like, one of my takeaways was like, unless you think, you know, you can actually, you know, you have an insight or like you are like kind of the top 1% in your field, um, it's probably not like positive odds for you to, to start a company. Um, I think Ethereum is a bit weird because it's not actually a company, right? Like, so if you compare, if, if you go back to like 2016, 2015, when Ethereum launched, you know, Ethereum was like absolutely like a like completely new invention. Like, you know, there was nothing like it. And, and um, 
obviously like its success today is is partially based on that. It was just like this this like step function change at what was possible in my computing. And obviously, you know, the previous big one was like Bitcoin. Um, and I think you know there were a bunch of tweaks that people tried to do to Bitcoin. There were like there were obviously a bunch of crypto projects between Bitcoin and Ethereum. But I think if you if you zoom out like you know, since Bitcoin, Ethereum was like the actual first big innovation on like the, the blockchain space. And um, that's obviously very valuable. And I think if you look today, you know, um, the, the thing where Ethereum is probably like top 1% and differentiates some more is this idea that like the blockchain should have really high uh, censorship resistance guarantees. And this is probably where, uh, you know, today Ethereum is obviously a bit less differentiated in that it's not the only place where you can write a smart contract. Many other blockchains have popped up in the years that can do that. I personally believe like it is the only or one of the extremely small number of smart contract chains and even blockchains generally who care and design about building a network that's like really censorship resistant. And we can get into like why that matters later. But I think, you know, if you had to like quickly summarize what's like the Thing at which Ethereum is like in the 1% best, that's what I would say today. Uh, so Tara, you are a Bitcoiner, you know, you have been a Bitcoiner from very early on, but I know that you also like Ethereum very much. So can you express a little bit about what you think of what Tim just talked about and the whole being the top 1% and the, the value and the, the importance of that being uh, decentralized and, and censorship resistant? Because a lot of times people compare Bitcoin and Ethereum, but they are two completely different things. They, they solve different problems from my understanding. But what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the important things. So I'm definitely, you know, a, a Bitcoiner, I wouldn't go so far to say like a true Bitcoin maxi. Uh, I do think other chains are useful and will survive. And what I think Ethereum's been really good at is is saying, you know, we're not trying to compete with Bitcoin. Like it, they're not chains that are looking to do the same thing. But definitely there are, there's a much bigger market out there trying to eat Ethereum's lunch than Bitcoin's lunch. Like for every invention and innovation that Ethereum's trying to do, there's another blockchain out there that's tried to do sharding or tried to do smart contracts or tried to do a token ecosystem. So I think it's going to be most interesting for Ethereum now is it is the market leader in all of those things, but how does it stay the market leader? I'm certainly from, I think one thing which has been great already to see is Solana looked like it was a contender and I think it's rapidly looking not like a contender now with all of the outages that it's had. Even you know other protocols are looking to add token support and smart contract support like Cardano has not got anywhere near the traction. Polkadot, again, like, you know, doing well with the parachains, but it, it's not really looking to eat into Ethereum's market share. So I think that's what's been super impressive about what you guys have done over at Ethereum. You've kind of like held your position. And even though, you know, things are maybe taking a little bit longer than everyone would ideally want when it comes to the merge and, and things like that, we're chugging in the right direction still. And, you know, I like Bitcoin. Bitcoin's very slow with development, so I'm not going to be shouting kind of when merge. Patience is good. So actually, speaking of the merge, do you have uh, some technical questions for Tim on uh, what's happening with the merge as we speak? Yes, I was actually uh, listening into the all devs call uh, the other day, um, which was which was great. I love listening to the dev calls. Um, what, what's your confidence level around Ropstein and how that's going to go? 
So for kind of anyone listening, Ropsin's one of the big, uh, one of the oldest test nets for Ethereum. And as part of the merge process, so moving to this uh, proof of stake world for Ethereum, there's a whole bunch of testing that you do to make sure it's all going to go well. And Ropstein is the next test net where the merge is going to be activated on, looking hopefully around uh, June the 8th. So how are, you, how are you feeling about that, Tim? Is it looking good? Are you feeling confident? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Maybe just like to make sure your listeners actually understand what the merge is. It's worth taking a minute or two to kind of paint a high level picture. And then we can get into like where we are today and like what are the, the specific things we're looking at. Aside from like the very basics, Ethereum today, uh, just like Bitcoin uses proof of work. Um, so we we have like miners who, who, who build the blocks. And after Bitcoin, Ethereum is by like very far, the sec- like it is the second biggest proof of work chain. And there is like no third close one. Like I'm not sure what the third one is, but it's a massive gap between the two. Um, so you could, you know, if you're like rounding very coarsely, you could say like Bitcoin and Ethereum are like the two only proof of work chains that like matter or have a level of security that's like quite high. Um, and Ethereum has always had in its roadmap to move away from proof of work to proof of stake um, since like the very beginning, since 2015. And in 2018, we almost got there, but um, we we realized there we had a design for it, but it was it was quite inelegant. Um, and in parallel to uh, to moving from proof of work to proof of stake, there's this whole other research area of, of in Ethereum about uh, scaling the platform, like how do we get more uh, users on it? And they also had this sort of solution in 2018, and it was also not very elegant. And so in 2018, there was this big decision made by the community to like scrap both those plans and come up with like a design that's a bit more integrated and, and, and elegant. Um, and this is why, you know, people like to complain that like the, the transition has taken forever because like, you know, we, we kind of worked on it from 2015 to 2018, almost got there and then decided to go back to the drawing board. And now in like 2022, another like four years of work later, like we're, we're, we're finally, finally close. Um, and and um, with regards to the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, one of like the big changes in the design was how do we make it easy for people who don't necessarily have like tons of uh, capital or of like technical experience to be first class validators on the network? Um, so proof of stake chains today, basically everyone except Ethereum, and there might be exceptions to this, they have like a very small number of validators um, who who effectively like require lots of capital and require lots of of like technical knowledge and like a full engineering team to operate. Um, So the idea with Ethereum was like, can we just reduce that like capital barrier? And can we we reduce like the technical complexities of operating your validator? And so now kind of the the capital is is 32 ETH required, uh, which is still high, uh, was much less high in 2018 when that decision was made, Um, but it's it's still much lower than like other other proof of stake chains. um, the penalties and rewards are set in a way where if you have issues that are decorrelated from the net, rest of the network, you're penalized less harshly. Um, so this is kind of neat if you don't have like a professional internet connection or something like that. If you just, you know, the power goes out in your town um, and your validator goes offline for 24 hours, assuming everybody else is still online, you get penalized much less harshly than say you're running on AWS and AWS goes down. Um, so anyways, we, we spent like all these years trying to do these design tweaks to make the, the system a bit more uh, accessible, I guess. Um, and now we finally have something we're happy with um, because by like 2019, 2020, when we, when we launched this, the Ethereum chain already had tons of usage. 
we launched the proof of stake chain completely separate from the proof of work one to not cause any disruption. So since like 2020, there's actually been two Ethereum chains. There's the proof of work chain where all the applications live, where all the smart contract lives. Um, and there's this separate proof of stake chain, which has real ether inside of it and it creates blocks, but all those blocks are basically empty. They just don't have end user transactions. And so the merge is this process by which um, we kind of combine the two chains where on Ethereum, instead of listening to proof of work to tell us what is like the last valid block in the chain, um, at some specific point, we decide to transition and from that block listen to proof of stake. And from the proof of stake chain perspective, it just goes from producing blocks which don't have transactions in them, the blocks which do. Um, and anyways, we can dive into that much, much deeper, but on a high level, we're just gonna kind of deprecate proof of work and transition all of the application and users to this proof of stake chain, which is already live, has been running for like well over a year with tens of billions of dollars securing it. So we have high confidence that's like, it's a, it's a good kind of, uh, it's a good new home for all the applications and value. Um, and obviously before we do that on the main Ethereum network, we wanna do a lot of test runs to make sure we got it right. Um, and so that's that's basically what Tara was referring to is um, we've done a lot of like ephemeral test runs where we just spin up a new Ethereum network, run things on it and, and, and make sure that it works. Now um, we're ready to move to these public test nets that we have that are a bit longer standing. So even applications, you know, if you think of OpenSea or Uniswap, when they make changes to their contracts before deploying them on the main Ethereum network, they deploy them to a test Ethereum network, where, which is basically like a copy of Ethereum, but the Ether is, is not worth anything. Um, so it, it allows them to test things there. Um, and so we'll do the same thing with the merge. Um, and we basically next week are going to be doing it on uh, one of our two proof of work uh, networks. And overall, I think it's looking good. The challenge, the challenge with the test nets is um, they're almost harder than the real transition because proof of work, proof of work is based on the assumptions that people are competing and putting more and more power to get these valuable coins from the network. But if you have a proof of work test nets, the coins are worth zero. So the assumption that like people compete and put more and more hash rate does not hold. So you get super variable hash rate and generally very low because like, why would you mine a proof of work chain that gives you no money? Um, and so this is like the main thing we just need to, to kind of uh, work around is because the, the chain, the, the proof of work levels on the chain are very low. Um, we just, there's just more variability than we expect to see on mainnet. And it's a bit of like a hassle to, to deal with that, but uh, that kind of hiccup aside, I think, um, I think it'll be, yeah, it'll be really good to see like a, a large Ethereum network transition uh, and to have users and applications be able to see like, what does the transition feel like? What does it look like on the other side of the transition? You know, um, so yeah, it's, it's looking good, but there's some weird hiccups because of the test net proof of work. Forgive me if I ask you some uh, ignorant questions. You know, I'm not a, a technical person, but is there no way to simulate this uh, using AI to figure out like what will happen? We simulate it in many, many, many different ways. Uh, so. You know, I could have a whole hour conversation just about how we're testing this stuff. Um, but you can think if there's like a way to test it, you can you can imagine that we're doing it from the very basics. You know, like we write just we write tests for the code. Like you know, you expect something to happen, and and you write kind of a test condition for that, and 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 you make sure that those tests always pass every time you're adding something. Then we write like transition or like integration tests where like you put 
you kind of launch a new copy of, of the software in like an isolated environment, make it run to run operation, make sure that that operation works. Um, then we have some more complex ones where you, you might have just like more complicated scenarios. Um, the other thing we do a lot of, it's the difference with AI is um, what, what you actually want to, to check for here is not necessarily the most intelligent case, which is like what you would maybe use AI for, but it's more, is there a weird corner case scenario that you haven't thought of that you hit? And so the way we, we address that is, is called fuzzing. And what fuzzing is, you can think of it as just sending an immense amount of random inputs to these things and making sure that like, because the random, you know, 99.99% of the inputs will just return an error, but you wanna make sure that both when it should return an error, it does, but also that the like 0.01% that should actually work, works. So we just like send, like bombard all the software with like all this like random data and, um, and do that for like weeks on end and every possible combination or types of input. And what we'll do is we'll also compare like different uh, pieces of software against each other, make sure they agree. Um, but that's, that's roughly like the, the approach we use for that is just send a ton of data. Most of it should return an error. If something is bad and does not return an error, that's like a bug that we need to fix. And then similarly, you know, some small part of it should return, uh, it should pass, but make sure that when it does pass, it, it passes the same way for everyone in every part of the system. Yeah, so we have plenty of different teams looking at this from, from all different angles, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure if there's a way to yeah. do it, you're you're trying yeah. it. I was going to say on that one, sorry, wasn't the challenge in, uh, and correct me if I've got this one wrong, but the challenge before that, um, someone basically tried to do a bit of their own testing on this they threw a load of yes. extra hash rate in and so the network was expecting to do this uh, certain switch over um i like avoid the technicals of it and someone just basically said well what would happen if it switched over sooner and so they threw a load of extra hash rate on to do their own bit of testing which then started yeah. to swing things out so whilst you can do as much kind of integration testing unit testing as you want at the end of the day, someone's going to try and throw a kind of spanner in the works, and that's very hard to protect against. Yeah, exactly. And and like the, the thing that happened is, so we need we need to update the software on Ethereum to for it to be aware that the merge is going to happen at some point, right? So it's like a two step thing. It's like one, you need to update the the software and have it like check, you know, are we ready yet? Are we ready yet? And then you need to set the point at which uh, the merge happens. So basically, every like second, it's it's just checking like, hey, are we ready to merge? No, okay. Then checks again and again and again. Um, and on the Ethereum mainnet, we, we basically know, you know, blocks come every like 13 seconds or so. There's about this much hash rate. So it's very easy to like update the software and have it check and make sure that that check is in the future. Um, but on these test nets, because the hash rate is so low, people can like pull the future forward in a way by just like creating a bunch of miners. So what happened specifically last week is just, um, somebody kind of pulled our check value it made they made it happen prior to the network even knowing that it should be checking for a value um and so the way we fix that is basically now what we do is we we tell it that when we upgrade it and, and get it to start the check we just tell it to check for like an immense value that is uh, 200 years in the future um and no one's gonna like basically do that because uh, it would cost tens of billions of dollars to make that happen. Um, and then once we know that everyone is checking, we can just lower the value and for something that's like a couple of days out. Um, and then the worst case scenario is like maybe instead of hitting it in 
five days, we hit it in two days. Um, but at least the entire network is already like checking for that value. And, and um, yeah, so that was just a weird thing because of how test nets are, are, are made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, what do you say, Tim, to people who say Ethereum going from proof of work to proof of stake is going to be less censorship resistant? This is a very big uh, argument that uh, is often made. And I used to think that until I listened to a very long podcast interview. I think it was on, also on Bankless. Yeah. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm starting to kind of better understand uh, the value of, of making this shift. Yeah. So, so there's two things that you, you want to make sure can't happen on your blockchain. Um, the first is you want to make sure that you can't change the rules of the blockchain without having like a broad agreement in the community. And the second is you want to make sure that anyone can use the blockchain and they're not like being uh, removed from it uh, or censored from it, basically, uh, based on any factor. And, you know, you can imagine something like uh, whether that's sanctions, whether that's just like private actors trying to like compete against each other the wrong way. Like you, you want to provide like a stable set of rules that everybody has agreed on, um, which you cannot like exclude participants for. Um, and so on, on that first point, in terms of providing like a, a set of rules that uh, participants agree to, the thing that like Ethereum and, and Bitcoin as well, like stress a lot is you want to not only have nodes who create blocks on the network, but you want to have nodes who listen to those blocks and make sure that they're correct. And this is where a lot of like the discussions about proof of stake gets a bit muddied because um, as we talked about earlier, if you have a system where like you need to be like a DevOps engineer to run a node and have millions of dollars, there's only going to be like a very small number of people who do that. And then what can happen is what if they all collude together and decide to, you know, print themselves tokens or delete somebody's tokens. It's like nobody else can verify that that's correct. Um, Whereas on Bitcoin and Ethereum today, what happens is even though there's only a small number of miners or of validators uh, on, on Ethereum in proof of stake, there's a bunch of nodes on the network. They kind of act like white blood cells. Like every time there's a new block that's created, these nodes, they know the protocol rules and they'll run through every single transaction on that block and make sure that it's a valid protocol transaction. So an example is like, you know, a malicious example could be, say you're a miner and you print yourself a million Ether all the nodes on the network will catch that and they'll say, wait, this is actually invalid. And they'll reject your block. And because there's all these other nodes on the network and the miners know that you know, other people have nodes on the network, they don't really have an incentive to send a bad block because they know that everybody else is going to reject it. And they're just going to build on basically the block before that. And that miner loses their, their, uh, their reward from that block. And it's the same applies in proof of stake as well. Um, but the, the, the idea is really about like, it, it's not about proof of work versus proof of stake. It's about having a culture where like, there's people on the network who are not producing the blocks, who still run a node and who uh, are able to validate that the transactions are, are valid. And, you know, there's obviously the malicious case, but there could also be a bug, right? There's the, and from Ethereum's perspective, it's just as bad, you know, like, a, you, and we can't even know, you know, like you can imagine a, a transaction that mints infinite Ether. Is that like just a bug somewhere? Is that like a malicious transaction? The protocol can't differentiate. But what you want is you want to have a bunch of other nodes on the network who can say, hey, well, you know, this doesn't look right. And they can all agree to each other. And so they can just ignore this, this wrong one. Um, so that's really like the big thing. And, and I think um, when, when people look at like existing proof of stake systems on other chains, um, it's, it's often the case that 
they use proof of stake, yes, but it's also they just have like these really high requirements to run a nodes. And, and that's the point that makes it much less, uh, that gives you much lower guarantees that the protocol rules won't change because you don't have anybody verifying them or you have a much lower number of actors verifying them. I think the, the other bit about censorship resistance is like, okay, assume the protocol rules don't change. What you then want is like, if I send an Ethereum transaction, I want it to be like included in the chain no matter what, you know, like, and as long as obviously it's a valid transaction. And there what you want is basically some dispersion of um, who, who are the people creating these blocks? Because imagine a world where like, Again, this could apply to proof of work or proof of stake, but say every Bitcoin miner is in the United States and the United States you know, bans transactions from a country, the United States can obviously take action against those companies because they're, they're, they're in their country. Um, but if you have some miners in the US and some in Europe and some in China and some in other countries, um, it means that I could send a transaction that's maybe banned in the United States, but like um, then the miner from like the Europe, from Europe includes it or from some, somewhere else. So, and, and, you know, countries is one axis to think about it, but you can think about it on like any type of correlation. Like what you want is like to have a bunch of people producing blocks who have different incentives from each other, different like uh, regulatory regimes. Um, and, and, and I think that's like really healthy. And I think, um, again, this, this kind of comes back to like how hard or easy is it for, for, for these entities to operate and, and on Ethereum specifically, like we've tried to design things such that it makes it easy for, for staking pools and for individual stakers to, to be set up. And, and I think we've seen it already. Like, you know, we have many different staking pools on Ethereum of even those staking pools use many different operators that are distributed, you know, across different ge geographies. Some are big companies, some are startups. Um, and same thing with independent validators. Like we have people kind of spread out around the world who just, can produce blocks on Ethereum. And that means that um, assuming, they, assuming they all disagree about who should be censored, you would hope that the end result is like, there's no one who's like banned by every, every one of those combinations. Yeah. And Tara, I was gonna ask you, uh, as a Bitcoiner, do you find uh, the explanation that Tim get, uh, gave um, to be um, acceptable for why Ethereum is moving from? <laughs> Yeah, so I was gonna, I was gonna ask. I suppose for for me, I think the the focus on proof of stake actually is so, something we almost need to get past. I think propose a builder separation, and Tim, maybe you can kind of give a better overview for that in a minute. But I think that's almost more important in the longer term journey. For the censorship part, for me, my biggest concern and where Ethereum is going with that is the data availability side and pruning because uh, and i'll give a little to a, like tldr on that but tim can definitely give a better one so the journey that theorem is going on is that eventually um nodes will stop holding a full history of the blockchain so on ethereum right now there's three different types of nodes so you have an archive node which has the full history everything in there all of the states a full node which has a truncated version of that and then you can have a light node where you're only uh, listening to you only hold the transactions which are relevant for you. So let's say you're a wallet, for instance. And the journey that Ethereum's on is moving to away from those archive nodes. So instead of holding everything, you only hold the last, I think it's about a year or something. And with blob transactions, it could be around about a month. So you would then need to rely on third-party services, whether it's IPFS or maybe it's uh, Filecoin or some other methods or Arweave, whatever it may be, 
if you want the full history, which is obviously really needed if you're a block explorer or you are a crypto compliance company, for instance, and you need to be able to look at the full chain history. So I worry there that if you're relying on another party to get the full history and they either say, no, you can't have it, or they give you the wrong history, that for me feels like a bigger risk in terms of censorship. So maybe you can give a bit of a, an overview on how that you see that working. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, the image that like is worth thinking about for like the long-term state of Ethereum, you can think about it a bit like a posting board, uh, <laughs> like in a community center. Um, and and what, what I mean by that is um, that's, that's definitely one of the biggest differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I think that the Bitcoin side of things is like you want to be able to get all of the data and, and run through it all yourself and, and, and prove that like every, you know, it, it has happened. Um, and not only that, you want every single participant on the network to be able to do that. Um, so on, on Ethereum, um, the, the kind of long-term philosophy is, is a bit different where we want every single participant on the network to be able to validate um, basically a, a fairly recent state of, of the network. Think like months, right? Like not like hours, but uh, again, a, a Bolton board is kind of a good example there uh, where like, where if you like reasonably wanted you know, to, to have access to the data and say you needed to start a new node from scratch, you know, go buy a computer, download the node, like start it from scratch, sync it, get your data, you know, that's your that's you are very like good in that time frame. But beyond that, basically um, the protocol itself should not guarantee that all of the rest of the data is available um, directly. And that doesn't mean that the data kind of disappears. Obviously, you know. Many people have an incentive to store it and, and like will make it available. Um, if you do get a copy of the data, there are ways where you can verify that it's correct. So like this, this bit around like somebody sending you wrong data um, is something that you, you, you can, you can uh, validate against is, as long as you have as long as you have part of the recent data that you get from the protocol. Um, but, but the idea is just that like because, um, because basically there's just so much data and it's going to keep growing, um, we would rather have like very strong security guarantees of what the protocol offers around like the, the most kind of recent part um, and then be okay with not having a guarantee in the protocol about about the ancient history and I think you know that sounds really bad when you say it from like a protocol designer's perspective and, and bitcoiners hate this I think like the argument is a bit more of like a if you take a step back from the, the blockchain itself you know if if I ask you like what's the last ethereum block we might disagree because there's like short-term reorgs, there's stuff like that. Um, if I ask you like 10 blocks ago, generally people like get a higher level of agreement and like a good proxy for that is like exchange confirmations, right? Like, I don't know what the numbers are, but like when you send Ethereum to, to an exchange, I think it's about like 30 blocks. After 30 blocks, that exchange basically considers that settlement strong enough that like they're willing to like give you fiat for it and that you you know, withdraw that money. And maybe in practice, you know, it's actually a bit longer because say you send your money to like Coinbase, for example, and, and you sell your Ether to USD and, and withdraw your USD. Uh, there's a couple of days there. So maybe, you know, they, they're fine giving you like 30 blocks to get on the exchange, but they want like a couple of days for you to get off. But like at some point, you know, that even that exchange is comfortable, like uh, giving you your money back. And, and the thing is what happens, especially on a chain like Ethereum is like every day, there's like millions, if not billions of like economic activity that gets settled in a certain way. Um, so people kind of have to agree that 
this was the state of the chain. Otherwise, they kind of can't move on with their economic lives, right? Like, imagine you sell an NFT to somebody for Ether, and like three days later, you come back and you realize, oh, wow, that transaction didn't actually happen. Um, like, that would be just like a terrible experience. And, and this is kind of why we think it's, it's acceptable. If you think on like the order of months, like that, you know, no one would really dispute like the state of the ledger three months from, from like ago or something like that because like and even if they did realistically like we could not undo all those transactions because there's so much economic activity that has settled on it um and i think bitcoin luckily gets to sidestep this a bit because the economic activities are much more um are much less intertwined because bitcoin is for the very large part of its economic activity just like transfers from one to the other you could like arguably roll them back and like undo this chain of transactions much easier um it would not be great because uh, anything that's been settled, like sent to an exchange, would obviously not be able to undo. So, like, I doubt you would ever see that in, in practice. Um, but, but because Ethereum just like has a much richer set of like activities, and and we can dive into MEV after. But because the ordering of those activities matters a bit more on Ethereum, like it's it's much less realistic that like you would undo part of that chain and, and redo it again. And so this is why we think like if we have really strong security guarantees about like a fairly recent amount of data. Um, and then some out of protocol guarantees about like at least one person maintaining a copy of the data and being able to distribute it. Um, we're, we're kind of fine with that trade-off. Um, especially when the, basically because the, the opposite side, there's like two other things you can do, right? Like that's what we do. The two other things you can do is kind of what Bitcoin does is like you really limit the set of what is possible on the network to keep it simple and then everybody can download a copy. Um, obviously that's not gonna happen on, on Ethereum. And then the other, the other kind of uh, direction, which is what basically most of Ethereum's competitors do is you can just increase the requirements on every node on the network. So you say, well, okay, there's just gonna be more stuff, but everybody has to download everything. But then that's even worse because it's like, you know, you can't even get the recent part as a normal user because there's just so much you need to download to get there. Whereas um, on Ethereum, it's like we accept that not everybody's going to have a copy of the entire history, um, but the people who want a copy of like the recent data, which is where most of the contention risks are, um, then we make that as easy as possible for them. Um, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, we uh, at Liptic, we run nodes for a whole bunch of blockchains and certainly, for instance, Stellar, which is pretty pretty heavy and uh, Solana as well. These are heavy blockchains to try and keep all their data for. So I think it's it's a challenge that other blockchains are going to have to have a look at and figure out at some point. Because like I say, otherwise, it just becomes prohibitive to run nodes for the majority of people. So this, this brings us back to that um, blockchain trilemma, right? And that is like, obviously there is no easy solution. And if there was, you know, other people would have done it. So Tim, I wanted to ask you about um, decentralization. Um, I think that a lot of us are attracted to blockchain technology because of decentralization. So uh, can you talk a little bit about why decentralization matters? Yeah, of course. Um, the way I've so decentralization is used like so much that it becomes like a, a almost like a meaningless term. Um, the way I think about it, like, is uh, I kind of touched on this earlier. It's this idea of decorrelation. Like, I think the reason why you want this network to be decentralized is because you want any 
any possible aspect of it that you care about to have decorrelated failures. So like if we're talking about the proof of stake consensus, that means having big validators and small validators, validators, you know, in China and validators in the US and like, and basically have having like no single thing that is like super coordinated that somebody can just like poke that and break the, the, the system. Um, and, and, and similarly, this is why you want to have like a bunch of independent people running nodes and, and have it be easy for people to run nodes because otherwise if it's just, you know, like large companies, then like there is like a big correlation there. It's like, it's only companies and not individuals running nodes and whatever like risks are common across companies is like now a risk to your blockchain. And so this is really like the, thing I think about, and there's like this computer security meme, which I think is really helpful is like, if you think of computer security, like the best approach is like having a big stack of Swiss cheese where like none of the holes like overlap, right? Like if you put enough like pieces of Swiss cheese on top of each other, then like you can't see through the whole thing. And I think this is kind of what decorrelation, uh, decentralization gets you is like, nobody's perfect on the network. You know, everyone has like certain risks, but as long as like all those risks are different and there's a broad enough number of, of actors who like are doing things so that you're like adding slices of, of, of cheese to the, the stack, like you, you get something that like you can't see through. And, and like the counter example to that is like we were just talking about, like if, you know, running your node is super hard, then like whatever problem professional node operators are subject to, then like your blockchain will be subject to that. And, um, and then conversely, whatever benefits you get from like, non-professional node operators that your blockchain would miss out on that. Um, so yeah, I think it's really about like just like decorrelated failure modes and yeah, the Swiss cheese image, I think is the best, the best way to think I about it. I love it. I think that was one of the best explanations anybody gave. I really like the <laughs> decorrelation and the Swiss cheese. Tara, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I wonder whether you can maybe give a bit of color about how you see proposal builder separation coming into play with regards to decentralization, because it's it feels to me anyway that this is like the next big trend that we're going to see across yes. blockchains. Yes, okay, of course, yeah. So um, again, kind of touching on what we hit on earlier, Ethereum has worked hard to solve the problem of like, how do you make being your validator accessible? And like, we were very proud of this. Um, and then MEV happened. And... Uh, for, for your listeners who are not aware, MEV stands for minor extractable value. But when, when they came up with the term, it was kind of bad because it has nothing to do with the fact that you're minor or not. It's, it's as got, possible in proof of stake. I think it just got rebranded. It's now max yes. extractable Yeah, value, maximal extractable yeah. value. <laughs> they say it was that all along now, but it's, it's not. Um, but anyways, and, and MEV is this idea that like, if you control the order of transactions in a block, you might be able to exploit that for profit. So for example, um, if somebody's about to buy a million dollars of token on Uniswap, you can buy that token before, like put your transaction before, and then when they buy, it pushes the price up, and then you can sell your tokens right after they bought, and then you 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 make like a risk-free arbitrage because you're building the block. And this is like a very basic MEV example, but like it's grown into an entire industry of just like how can people like choose a specific ordering of transactions and blocks such that it's like very profitable for them. Um, and that means that like, there's now like a, a gap between if I'm just a validator running at home using like the basic transaction pool algorithm that sorts by however uh, much gas price they give me, um, I'll make less money than like if, if I'm this like mega like 
optimizing machine that can just look at all the potential permutations of how you would put the transactions, insert some of mine, and 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 then create that block. Um, and so that's really bad. Like what you don't want is like some you know validators to make x in transaction fees and somebody else to make like two x in transaction fees. Um, and so what what we've worked on, on on the Ethereum side is to have a way to create kind of a market between the people who propose the blocks, which we which are validators, um, and the people who actually create like these optimal blocks in a way, which we call uh, builders. Um, and that means that for builders, it's actually a better deal because instead of needing to control the validators themselves, they can just focus on like creating really good blocks and then sending them to the network and the next validator picks it up. And then for the validator, it's also a good deal because um, instead of trying to do all these crazy optimizations themselves, they just get a block from the builder. They can trivially verify that the block is is uh, is valid. So, you know, that they're not like doing something illegal in a way. So it's kind of a, a neat way to, to balance this problem. The challenge though is uh, you've, you've kind of solved things for validators, but from a centralization perspective, um, it means that you're now relying on like these massive entities who have like really big returns to scale um, to kind of build blocks for your blockchains. And what you can also imagine is that the skill set of like building a block that's optimal is the same on Ethereum as it is on Solana or on Avalanche. It's like, you know, the, the problem of like, there's this many transactions and how do I order them in a way that gives me the most money um, is, is really applicable multi-chain. So I think this is like the big risk is that, you know, while yes, if you like strictly look at the protocol level, things look really decentralized, that behind the scenes, we end up in a world where there's like, you know, five big companies who basically produce all the blocks uh, in the world. And, and the risk there is like, you know, those companies might also be like traditional finance companies because like this is basically what market makers do in traditional finance and much i'm, I'm very i'm butchering what market makers do but it's like this, this problem of like just sorting through a high amount of transaction optimizing them in, in in just the right way like high frequency trading firms like basically do that so there's a risk that like this industry ends up consolidating and maybe consolidating like within players that are not necessarily aligned with the blockchain ecosystem. Um, and, you know, like, frankly, we, we haven't quite solved that yet. I don't think this is like an Ethereum problem. I think any change with large transaction fees will be subject to this. Maybe Bitcoin a bit less. Like, I think Bitcoin also has some MEV, but relative to its transaction fees, it's, it's much lower. Um, but like, for anyone else, like, you know, the more transaction fees you have, the more MEV you have by definition. Um, and like this shows up on Ethereum first because like Ethereum has the most transaction fees, um, but a chain is not immune to that today just because they don't see it. It's just because it's it's almost like not worth it for people to bother to do that on their chain because there's so little returns. But if they eventually aim to be successful, they're going to have to deal with this. So um, yeah, I think this is just like a big problem for the entire space. Like how do we make sure that the people building the blocks don't end up to be like a super small number of entities? Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, well, first of all, I wanted to say, I don't know why anybody bothers becoming a validator because you could make so much more money buying Goblin Town <laughs> NFTs, <laughs> you know, and like, this is going crazy. Have you seen? You don't have to, you don't have to time your entry and exit as well, though. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. Like this, that thing is going crazy over there. Um, so um, I have a question that uh, has been playing on my mind for a long time in that I'm trying to understand exactly 
what a blockchain is, what I mean by that is like some people say like, why do we have so many blockchains? We don't need so many blockchains because the blockchain is supposed to be like the internet, right? But the blockchain is basically like, it has to be only one blockchain, just like we have only one internet. And the other view is that sometimes it gets compared to companies, right? Like for example, Amazon, Apple, Google, etc. So personally, and correct me if I'm wrong, again, going from my you know, completely uh, beginner's mind and not not having that technical understanding, I see the blockchain as something between, you know, being like the base layer of the internet and uh, a company. So I see it as something in between two. It's like it's like a completely new entity. Would you agree with that? Uh, and based on that, do you think that the future is multi-chain? Yeah, um, I agree. It doesn't fall neatly into each of those. Again, I feel like my opinions change here, whether you're talking about Ethereum and like maybe Bitcoin specifically or like other chains. Like I, I do think there's a lot of blockchains today that are basically tech companies and 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 because they're like very centralized, they're like kind of controlled by a single like entity that, that's pushing them. So I, I think in, in some cases, the company's aspect makes a lot of sense. I think if you like, you know, take like a, a, a view of like, you know, what is like Ethereum trying to build, what is like Bitcoin trying to achieve, which is like a, a much less like centrally controlled thing. Um, to me, the, the closest thing is like an economic zone or like a country almost. Um, and the way the, the way I think about Ethereum, you know, and, and, and like what I, I hope it, it becomes is you, you want it to be this sort of economic zone that's obviously separated from like geography where, uh, you know, if you use Ethereum in like the Netherlands versus Canada versus South Africa, like, you know, you're still using the same thing. Um, and obviously, you know, if you're based in South Africa, you'll have different regulations about how you interact with Ethereum than if you're based in the Netherlands or, or, or some other country. But like the plat the protocol itself does not care. And yeah, I, I think if, if you think of it as like something where, you know, there's like commerce, there's obviously finance now that we've seen, there's obviously arts that we've seen. It, it becomes like this little like economy that's, uh, and then that has to be like governed somehow, like, and different like kind of bodies emerge and have different levels of political influence on it. And I think at that point, it becomes kind of close to a country. And especially again, if you, if you have something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, where like the value of the network becomes quite high and the kind of base asset of the network becomes something close to like money to some extent for, for people, then yeah, you're, you know, aside from having like roads and schools, you, you're quite close. Um, and I think the, the last thing I like about the, the country metaphor is it also focuses on like, what should blockchains give back? Like countries have like both imports and exports. Um, and right now blockchains are really good at like sucking talent and capital in from the rest of the world. Um, and my hope is like at some point, you know, we can give interesting stuff back to the rest of the world so that like they see us as like a, a good trade partner. And, and I think a lot of like the experiments on Ethereum are like a good, interesting thing there where like if we can come up with like new governance models, new funding models and things like that, that's maybe stuff that would not have get, gotten tested in like physical world institutions for a bunch of reasons. And, and, and I hope that like, yeah, that can kind of give back and like be the thing that why would other people tolerate Ethereum being around? Yeah. Definitely. I, I, I appreciate we are at time. Last question I had was how long do you think it will take before Ethereum is disrupted, considering like how Ethereum is now disrupting, you know, these when you think about Web2, right? It took Web2, yeah. what, 20, 30 years to get disrupted. So, you know, what's the future? 
Yeah, I don't know. That is a good question. How long it will take for Ethereum to be disrupted? Um, I don't know. I you would hope to think it's like a bit longer than like with two companies. And I think this is again like, are you building this thing as a company or like something different? I, I don't think like Ethereum and, and Bitcoin as well. Like to like the community's credit, it's like Bitcoin and Ethereum are not being built like a company. Like I think they're being built with like a much longer term vision in mind, and and hopefully that means they're like a bit longer lasting. Um, but it's hard. Like I mean, you know, obviously. Everyone probably thinks that and like gets disrupted. So I, I wouldn't want to be too optimistic there. But I do think we aiming to build something that's like longer lasting by itself might might give you some extra kind of runaway before you get disrupted. Awesome. Uh, go ahead, Tara, and then I we'll... just have a really small specific question. Um, so in the dev call, the old devs call the other day, there was a lot of talk about execution layer, consensus layer, and the updates there. The execution layer update is called Paris because it's after one of the um, meetings there, very community-led one. Why is the consensus layer called Bellatrix? There's a lot of Harry Potter kind of history with Nimble Wimble, et cetera. Is it that? Is it something else? Yeah, first off, I hate that we have double names. I'm going to fight against changing that when I have a bit more time. Um, the consensus layer upgrades, uh, we usually use DEFCON city names. And there wasn't actually a DEFCON in Paris, there, but there's another big community conference, ETCT. And it was just nice to like use a community-based conference uh, because like this transition has been waited for by the community for so long. And um, Bellatrix is just because we use tar names on the consensus layer. So it's actually much more boring. Uh, so the first one was Altair, then you have Bellatrix, and then afterwards probably Capella. Um, people just find star names that they like that go A, B, C, D, and E. Um, and I guess people like Bellatrix because there's other references as well. But yeah, unfortunately, it's a, <laughs> it's not as, as thought out. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Tim. We really appreciate your time. This was a fantastic conversation, and I hope to have you back. Yes, thank you so much. This was, this was great. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tim Bako and Tara Anderson. Be sure to follow both of them on Twitter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full interviews are also available on my YouTube channel, The Somi Ariane Show.